my name is Glenn Grubb. My wife Charlene's with me. Uh, we serve with Mission to the World on loan to JARS, and we've been with them for 36 years now. We, um, what I primarily did for 18 years was to work as a pilot, where I flew in uh, Papua, Indonesia, transporting uh, missionaries, Bible translators to and from their remote locations out in the jungle, and um, primarily in support of Bible translation. This is where we would have our Bible translators go and live among the people in the remote locations, learn their language, learn their culture, teach them to read and write their own language, and then translate the Bible into the, uh, the language that they could read for themselves. So we were doing that for 18 years. Uh, now I am working as the International Director of Aviation Safety. What I do is to tell people that they're doing things wrong in airplanes. and. Well, that, that's the way my co-workers think my, my job goes, but actually is to promote safety. Uh, flying is expensive and it gets more expensive when you bend things and break things. So my job is to provide oversight to our pilots and mechanics in the way we fly and maintain our aircraft. And uh, that involves teaching, it involves uh, doing investigations and teaching other people how to um, keep track of things so that we can keep the airplanes out of the ditches. Someone at JARS read a book, I think, because uh, if, you've, if you've worked in any kind of organization, you know how it is. Someone reads a book and now everything has to change to uh, conform to that book that they just read. And uh, recently someone told me that I needed to keep a record of everything that I do. So I have a spreadsheet that I can pop up on my phone and I can say, on this day, I taught for this many hours to this group, I taught them this. And um, uh, I, I want to do my job, but as an introvert, that makes me very uncomfortable keeping a, a list of things like that. Uh, when, you're, when you work as a missionary and you say that we're doing God's work with God's timing and with God's energy, and then you say, but here's what I did. It, it gets real uncomfortable doing that. And uh, that's why I brought this up here today. It's, it's to act as a metric of how do you measure things? Because you have been supporting Charlene and myself for more than 40 years. And uh, how, can, how can I come to you now and give you something that uh, doesn't sound like bragging because I don't wanna do that, but at the same time, give you encouragement on the ministry that you've had through us to the people of Papua, Indonesia, and now in my current position to many people around the world. And I think I have a precedent for feeling kind of uncomfortable. Um, if you remember in Samuel, 2 Samuel 24, David went and told uh, his, uh, his general, Joab, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go out and count all the people of Israel and come back and tell me how many people we have. And Joab was, he was not the, he was not the most upright man, but he even thought this was kind of unusual. And he says, well, King David, you know, may we grow a hundred times under your reign, but are you sure you want me to do this? And um, it says here, uh, David said, go through all the tribes and uh, from Dan to Beersheba and number the people that I may know the number of the people. And when he, they did this, it took them well, quite a, about nine months. They went through the, the country of Israel and came back and they reported that there were 800,000 
valiant men in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. It's a lot of people, um, but why did King David do that? More importantly, as soon as it was finished, guess what he said? It wasn't rejoicing. He did not say, oh, good, this is good. Things are going well for us. Instead, he said this. He said that uh, his heart struck him when he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. I want you to do this. As soon as it's done, I have sinned. And all they did was to number the people of Israel. Why is that? Why would you think that would be? Well, apparently, no one really knows because the Bible doesn't tell us. But it does give us a hint. Um, The Lord was displeased in all likelihood because it came to a point where David was starting to look around and not see the power of God in the maintaining of Israel as a nation, but in the people that they had there, the work that they were doing. And David felt so sinful about this, he confessed it to the Lord, and the Lord gave him three options. He said, we can go three years with a drought. We can go three months where your enemies pursue you. Or we can go three days where people die from a plague. Choose. And David said, I will choose the plague because at least then we're in the Lord's hand and not our enemy's hand. And something like 70,000 people died in the period of three days because David said, I want to number the people, probably in all likelihood, so they can feel proud, uh, a sense of pride about how they had grown as a nation. Now, this is not something that's unusual. We've seen this precedent before with Gideon. Um, when Gideon was going to go fight the Mennonite, it's one of those words. It's like pinochle. I can say pinochle, but I can't say it if I'm reading it on a page for some reason. The Midianites. If I did that wrong, just translate in your head. And he um, said that um, the Lord said, I can't use the number of people you have here. I think it was around 32,000 people. He says, I cannot give you the battle with this many people because you would think you did it yourself. So if anyone's afraid, if anyone's, as they said, trembling with fear, just go home. 22,000 men went home from that battle saying, well, if that's all it takes is to admit I'm afraid, I will go. So there were 10,000 left, and the Lord said, no, it's still too many. Uh, when, when you win this battle, I want everyone to know it's because it was through my power and not the power of your fighting men. So they were requested to go down to the river where they observed them drinking water. Some got down on their bellies and lapped the water up like a dog would with their tongue. Others knelt down and would scoop the water up. And he says, those are the people to keep. They ended up with 300 fighters as opposed to 32,000. That's quite a reduction in your workforce. But from that, the Lord gave them a victory, and it seemed like all they had to do was to take a torch and hide it under a jug, go running down a hill at night screaming and throw the jug, and their enemies killed themselves. So we can see that that when things happen, God wants to get the glory for this. But if we take the glory from him, then we're not in a good place. So part of me, when it comes to measuring a ministry, finding a metric for how are we going to measure something, Part of me has a great reluctance to doing that because I don't want to appear to be prideful. However, we do know that there are many cases in Scripture where the Lord does say, remember this day and do these things so that you can remember it, uh, to, to earmark what the Lord has done. 
One of those was with Jacob where he, he uh, built uh, an, an altar when he had his vision of the Lord. And it struck him so much that he built this altar there. Uh, another time was when, the, um, when they were coming across the Jordan into the promised land in Joshua. And uh, let me read that, Joshua 4. Joshua 4, 1 through 7. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, What do those stones mean to you? Then you should tell them of the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So it seems like even just gathering rocks and putting them down can be something that can bring glory to the Lord and not to the people who picked up the rocks and carried them. So it's something that's always impressed me is that God does want us to remember what he has done on our behalf. We should not forget these things. And that's, in many cases, that's why you will see at churches there will be memorials to godly men and women who have lived in that church and someone will put a plaque up for them. It's not to overly emphasize this person's greatness, but we really begin to realize that when people live a long life with the Lord, it's because the Lord has blessed them with his presence and not because it was through their own striving. So it seems like the litmus test of, of whether when we should say something about the work that has been accomplished is whether it gives God the glory or not or ourselves. And now this accounting comes to, um, to me recently. This reason to hold this, this, this level of accounting or accountability came to me, first of all, through jars when they said you've got to have a spreadsheet. But there's another reason, and that's because in March I turned 64. Now what happens when you start getting around that age? You start getting a lot of mail from um, the, a lot of these societies that want to take care of the old people. Uh, AARP, the Social Security Administration, they start sending you stuff. Just two weeks ago, Charlene and I went to our first Social Security meeting. And if you've ever been to one of those, it's pretty humbling when someone says, your life's work is worth this much. And you go, whoa. So I've had this thought in the back of my head, how do we account for the work that we've done in a way that brings glory to the Lord? And I could sit here and, and realistically, because of the records we kept in Indonesia, I could ask for these records and I could come back and I could say, I flew this many hours in an airplane and when I did it, I went to this many locations I took this much cargo on my airplanes, and I had this many passengers. In fact, the records are so good, I could probably tell you the names of all the people I took in my airplane. I could do all this stuff, but really, at the end of the day, all I did was fly an airplane. 
And I'm reminded of the writer of Ecclesiastes who said, you know, here's what he said actually, Ecclesiastes 2.11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had experienced doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a stirring after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You know, all I did was fly an airplane. Is there anything of significance that occurred throughout this time? Well, as I mentioned, I carried a lot of cargo, and that cargo usually came in the form of a, we call it a super me box. It's a dried noodle that, we, that was just all over the place in Indonesia. Here we call them ramen noodles. That was everyone's luggage. That was everyone's uh, cargo carrier in Indonesia because there were more boxes over there for, for dry noodles than you could shake a stick at. And I have carried lots of those boxes full of who knows what. And one day, Tom Beekman, uh, he was my chief pilot, called me into our, our little warehouse where we kept all our cargo before we would put it on the airplanes. And he walked in and he says, Glenn, I want you to carry these boxes out to Somanente. And uh, Somanente is a place I'd been serving at. We'd been in the country about six months at the time, and I'd been flying out there a, a great deal, actually, carrying lots of little boxes. But these boxes were a bit more, let's say, unusual because they were all the same size, and none of them had super me dry noodles written on the side of it. So it caught my attention, and I asked, I asked Tom, I said, so what are these boxes? And he says, that's the Barrick New Testament. And I was like, what? Because this was the first New Testament completed by Wycliffe Bible translators on our half of the island. Uh, well, back then it was called Irian Jaya, now it's called Papua, Indonesia. Now, Tom had been serving there probably close to 10 years by that time. And I was like, Tom, I just got here. You should be doing this. Tom said, nah, you go ahead and do it. And that's the kind of guy that Tom is. So I began to carry not just a box of food, not just a box of clothes, but a box of Bibles. And when you begin to understand what it takes to translate a Bible, even though I was taking that box out on a specific day, the work for that began probably 20 years before this. And it took that long to learn a language, learn a culture, reduce a formerly unwritten language to a written form, teach the users of that language how to read and write their own language, teach them to read and write the national language, translate the Bible into their, their mother tongue, and then print it and give it to them. So I just happened to drop in at the right time in a span of 20 years. This is the Bible, the Barrett New Testament. Uh, the, the Westerns gave me this Bible for delivering it into the village. So, but just delivering a Bible, eh, that's okay, great. You did that. The question is, does it make a difference? On the day of the Bible dedication, I was the pilot who had flown in there, and uh, I remember that they lined up young children in the village because they could read, and they opened up the Indonesian Bible. This is Bahasa Indonesia, it's the national language. And they began to read passages of scripture, and the older people in the village just stood there like they didn't care that God's word was being read. And the reason so is because it was in a language that did nothing to speak to their heart. It was a trade language. It's how you say go left instead of go right. It's not the language you use to express deep feelings. It's not the language that you use to express complex thoughts. It's the language that you use to say uh, this way, that way, up, down, a very 
it, it meant nothing to their heart. Well, then these same kids took out this Bible, the Barak New Testament, and they began to read the same passages in the mother tongue of the, of the older people that were in the village, and they began to weep because for the first time they were hearing God speak to them in a way that they could understand. So I carried lots of boxes, but that box was, was very important. There are other ones very similar to this, um, but one in particular to me was with a friend of mine, um, Andrew Sims. Andrew Sims uh, worked in a place called Omban. It was a, just a little village that was up in the mountains, stuck up in a small valley, and it had uh, two rivers that ran down each side of the, uh, the village and joined together and then went out of the valley. Very small runway. Uh, you'd probably not even notice if we flew over it. But he had been working there for a number of years, translating the Bible into the Ketanban language. And uh, he told me one day that he was there with his language helpers, and he was going over a passage of scripture that uh, to him it was a, an historical narrative. It's, you know, so-and-so says this, so-and-so says that. It was not one of these hard-hitting gospel passages that you, know, you expect people to respond to when they hear it. Instead, it was from Acts, and uh, Andrew was there, and he, was, he had translated, he, he had done his best at translating it into the Ketamban language previously, and now he was in a hut with his language helpers, reading it back to them so they could give their comments on it, see if they understood it, if this understanding was the same between everyone who heard this. It's a way we do to check the uh, scripture for its accuracy. And um, he was reading this passage here. It's Acts 17, starting verse 24. This is Paul addressing some people. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of the dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far off from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Now Andrew read that and you know he, was, he looked up to his language helpers, he said, and they were just kind of staring like a deer in the headlight. And they said, could you read that again? He thought, oh boy, I really messed up this translation. They didn't even understand what I said. So he read it back to them, and they began to talk amongst each other. Read it again, they asked. He read it again, and they began to openly weep. These grown men who have been in battles with bows and arrows and hatchets are now weeping because of Acts 17. And he was like, what is going on here? And that's when he got a deeper look into the culture of the Ketanban people and how they viewed themselves before God. They said, all of our life we have felt like we were the cast-offs, like uh, God used all the good material to make everyone else in the world, but for us he used the scraps and he left us out here in the jungle and he gave us a language that no one cares to learn, that no one understands, and that we are looked down upon by the larger society of our country. And now you're telling us that God put us here for the very purpose of bringing us to himself. Yeah, that's what God's word's saying. 
And Andrew said that that, that verse was the one that, that they pivoted on as a young church because now they saw that God cared for them. That it just wasn't a general call to the world to say, yeah, if you want to be a Christian, come on. It was, no, Kettenbaum people, I put you here for this reason so that you could come to me at this time. And Andrew said that it, it transformed the church. Well, Andrew uh, spent a few more years going through this and he um, finishing the translation. And I remember I was there one day and uh, Andrew was from Texas. He's a hard worker. Uh, he still is to this day. Um, very active, uh, strong as a horse, I think, still. But this day, uh, when he was helping me unload the airplane, he stopped and he said, I'm finished. And I re response to him was, no, you're not. There's still cargo left on the airplane. Come on, help me get this done because i got to start doing some shuttles back to some other places. And he said, no, no, no. He says, last night... I finished the New Testament for the Ketanban people. And I was the person that got to hear that. How do you measure success in a ministry? I didn't translate that, but I was able to hear on your behalf, because you're the one who sent me, that on that night, God's word was finished for these people. These people that had heard that God put them in that special place at that special time so they could hear the word of God straight in the language that speaks to their heart makes a big difference. So the, uh, the thing is, though, um, how do we measure these things, as I was mentioning before? Um, how do we have a proper mindset that will put us in a place where we are honoring God when we acknowledge at the same time that we have done things? Now, in the Old Testament, we saw that it was, God would actively intercede on behalf of people things would happen now he does things a bit differently he works through us through the holy spirit as we minister to others so how do we how do we give god glory at the same time recognize that we have accomplished some work on his behalf that is the thing i struggle with and i was struggling with this for for some time and uh finally i got one of these little glimmers these little light bulbs you see on the cartoons Mine was a 10 watt, but it, it was still there. And um, it was when Coble came to visit me at Jars. Uh, he had dropped by, your grandson was it? And uh, I got this call and um, I just wanna make sure they don't stop outside this door. So um, <clears throat> I got a call that someone was up at the, at the Townsend Center that knew me and I needed to go see who it was. And there they were. So suddenly I found myself as a tour guide, which is something I don't do normally. But I said, I can do this. And so I looked around, you know, the way you do when you're improvising. And I said, Coble, come over and look at this. And we have on display there these large bookcases. It's kind of boring. It's not much. In, it's recently been described by our new president as the entryway to a funeral parlor. That, that's the way our entry is very, very boring unless you know what you're looking at. And what it was was these bookshelves of all the Bibles that had been translated by Wycliffe Bible translators. And I walked over to this, this cabinet, and I said, right here, Cobble, look at this. I said, there's, there's the Barak New Testament. That was the first Bible translated in Papua, Indonesia, and I got to deliver that. And then I started thinking, you folks have supported us all the way through this. 
anything that I have done, you're partakers in it. It's just as if we have stock in a, a company. If the stock does well, everyone benefits. And then I began to look at all the other New Testaments that had been completed. And I realized if I'm going to measure anything that I've done, it can't be in how many boxes or cargo, of cargo that I took, people or miles or, or hours flown. It would be in what will last forever and ever. And that's the Word of God. So what I did is, as I said, I, I brought this to remind me that we, we measure things. What I did was on the back of this is why this paint has blue tape on it. Is uh, I marked out, I took a, a yardstick up there, got them to open the case for me, and I found out the width of each one of those Bibles that uh, I helped deliver in Indonesia. You'll find the Barak New Testament on it, and you'll find the last one that was translated before we left. But if you look at it, there are 17 Bibles represented on this, whereas before there were none. From the Barak New Testament, all this is alphabetical, of course, to, to the Yahweh New Testament. Some of these are just the New Testament. Some of them are the Old and uh, New Testament. Uh, so there are 15 New Testaments, two completed Bibles. Andrew said that with these few verses from Acts, that the church of the Ketanban had been transformed when they learned that God had put them in a place at the right time for the right reason, and this was the time. And he said it transformed the church. Well, if you add up all the verses that are represented by, by this stick here, there are 181,579 verses being represented on this measurement right here. And if you look real close on it, remember I said when this, when I delivered this New Testament, that the work had been going on probably close to 20 years before I ever got there. Which means that when I left in 2010, we've got until about 2030 before the work that I was participating in then will actually come to fruition with the New Testament. So that's why I have on here this little arrow, is to remind you that you made an investment in our ministry way back in, man, I don't even know when, 40 years ago. I don't want to pull out my calculator, plus it'd probably be depressing for most of us when we measure time that way. But uh, for 18 years we were there, and we were investing our lives. You were also investing yours in us through your prayers, through your financial giving. Uh, again, we'd like to thank you for that, for the many years of your faithfulness, especially in light of, of recent things with our ministry where we've had certain churches drop us, and you have, you have upped your support to us. We are very appreciative of that. And, um, but more importantly is your prayers for us. We have done things that I did not think we could do, such as be married 40 years. And uh, so I know some of you are probably surprised at that, too. Uh, I definitely married up. Charlene settled. But um, so I did this for you so that you can understand your investments have paid off. But your investments are long term and they will continue at least for the next 15 years, I think. Because when I left Indonesia, we weren't involved in 15 New Testaments. We were involved in 64 New Testament translations when I left there in 2010. So you made investments in over 64 New Testament translations that will come to fruition somewhere in the future. So just be mindful of that when, 
When you're sitting there and you're saying, eh, what have I done? But I don't want to be proud. God has done this. I can guarantee it. If you've ever seen Papua, it is the backside of the world. And the fact that anything can keep going, much less a technical operation such as Bible translation and as aviation, you'll understand that it's only been able to do that because of prayers from people like you. So I leave this with you. Uh, it will probably be down in Matt's office. Tell him it belongs to everyone, not just him, uh, that, that has participated in, in our ministry throughout the years. And uh, just to express to you, you, you are participating in a ministry that does have fruit. In this case, over 181,000 verses of Bible, uh, the Bible have been translated into a language that is not, not a dead language, not dead languages, but languages that still speak to the hearts of these little tribes that have been forgotten by the world. You have done a work that has given them God's word so that they can prosper, so they can stand before their God and say, yes, I am here because you have, someone came Gave me your word, and I understood it, and it was something that spoke to my heart. Can I pray for us? Father, I do thank you for my brothers and sisters, um, for the way they have given sacrificially, for the way they have prayed for us uh, every week for close to 40 years. I do thank you for that, and I ask that you bless them. Bless them, Lord, in ways that uh, I can't understand, but also, Lord, directly uh, bless them with the knowledge that they are participating in a ministry that is very large, that will last forever. As you said, that the, the flowers fade, the grass withers, but your word will endure forever. And they are participating in that, Lord, something that is gold and silver and not rust. And we do thank you for that. In your son's name, amen. Sir, we uh, appreciate um, all that God has done through you and your humility. Uh, if you all would please stand.